This is a HeadGum Podcast. Hey, Andrew, do you want to have a digital life? No, not really. Man, you're so good at yes I wish I was off the grid. This is the... (laughs) (laughs) I wish my life was more analog, but I understand why some people would want to have a digital life. Well, maybe you don't want to have a digital life because you don't have a good digital home yet. You could build Mm. one with Squarespace. Squarespace empowers millions of folks to bring their creative ideas to digital life. It's an all-in-one platform where you can build the site, claim the domain, sell your stuff, market your brand. Don't live off the grid. Live as live in the grid. <laughs> Be part of the grid. <laughs> uh, they've got award-winning design and beautiful templates that help all you DIY heads build a website that best fits your digital life. Are you a gamer, a blogger, a photographer, a record label? Whatever you are and whatever you need, Squarespace has the tools to help you build a beautiful life and website online. Just go to squarespace.com slash overdue for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use the off code overdue to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. In the words of Olivia Newton-John, let's get digital. Welcome to Overdue. It's a podcast about the books you've been meaning to read. My name is Craig. My name is Andrew. And we're here back again. You another week, another book. Another week, another, another book. dollar. Another sandwich. You know, I have, so, you know, everybody's working from home, eating at their desks. They're living their absolute best life. Uh-huh. You know? uh, and I was having sad sandwiches and they were fine. But then I decided, you know what, if I took this exact same stuff and I rolled it up in a wrap instead of putting it between two pieces of bread, like I'm eating the same thing, but it feels like I've put more effort in. Yeah. It's really, it's, and you can fit all kinds of spinach in them bad boys too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So wrap is going to, it has better containment mm-hmm. strategies. Yeah, yeah. 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 So that's my story and I'm sticking to it. I Wraps. Better than sandwiches. I make sad quesadillas sometimes. That's my sad lunch. I make a sad microwave quesadilla. Oh yeah. Even I mean, even when I'm making a quesadilla for my baby son, I do it over the stove. Like treat yourself. Nah, I gotta eat fast because we have a book podcast to make where one of us tells the other one about a story or a book that they read. And this week, Andrew is going to tell me about what Ziggurat by Gene Wolfe. What can you say that word again? Ziggurat. The ziggurat? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> you sound like you're shouting from the top of a ziggurat. <laughs> Maybe I am. Uh, this was a Patreon recommendation from Patrick. Thank you, Patrick. Uh, Patrick said, thank you so much for the podcast. Helps lighten the winter doldrums on my commute to work. This is from a year or so ago. <laughs> yeah, is this like um, winter 2018? Like, <laughs> uh, just became a patron and I have a novella I would like to recommend. It's called The Ziggurat by Gene Wolfe. The collection can be found in his Strange Travelers. It's about 90 pages, but I think there's enough there for a full episode. Thanks again, Patrick. Thank you, Patrick. Yeah, so like Patrick said, Strange Travelers is a 2000 collection of short stories. Um, the, the Ziggurat was originally published in, I believe, a magazine called Full Spectrum in the year of our Lord, 1995. So, yeah, Full Spectrum 5, some sort of short story print. Yeah, 1995, that's what I I don't heard. know if it was a magazine or if it was a, yeah, what it was, but... Bantam put it out, I think, so... Oh, sure, 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 sure. Um, Gene Wolfe is someone who... I have ever heard about, never read, and that seems to fit with his bio sketch. <laughs> like he is, he was out there for a good long time writing science fiction, and some people had read it, and a lot of people who've written science fiction have read his stuff. And if you've never heard of him, that's okay. It never seemed to kind of cross over in in the way that some of the authors we've talked about have. He never had his. 
I don't know, mainstream breakthrough. I don't think anybody's ever adapted Gene Wolfe to the screen necessarily in like a I big way. I think it way. would be tough. I think, I mean, you couldn't adapt Gene. Okay, I might. the sample size of Gene Wolfe sure. stories I've read as of right now is one. But yeah, okay. My impression is that if you were trying to adapt it to the screen, there would be some serious like uncomfortable, like black swan type oh. feelings that yeah. you would. Yeah. Yeah, just the the it's it'd be one of those movies where you would get tired from not knowing <laughs> whether what you're watching was real or not. I yes, think. and those can be an experience that you want. Often, that's an experience you have to prepare for. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, Gene was born in 1931. He passed away in 2019. There's a couple good uh, obits and articles of reflection about his career that came out just after his passing. I found one on the Ringer. Uh, that has, I think it closes with this paragraph. Isn't the Ringer I, a sports? They're uh, sports and general <laughs> pop culture. They were they were okay, founded by a guy, God, Grantland, the Grantland guy, and they okay, do sure. all sorts of writing. Um, yeah, no, write any website that Game exists, any yeah. any website that exists for long enough finds a way to become kind of about pop culture because yes. you can't leave like those Star Wars page views on the ground, <laughs> I guess. Yeah, I think that was like the big innovation from Bill Simmons. Anyway, yeah. um, this is Brian Phillips writing for The Ringer. His books are so singular, so challenging, and so out of sync with any conceivable mainstream that critics seem to be asking, what kind of great book is this? His life is so quiet, so meandering, and so far removed from literary grandeur or drama that eulogists sometimes seem to be thinking, what kind of life is this for a great writer? And he kind of sums it up with, I know the answer to both kinds, it is this kind. And that is at the end of a a nice long biographical sketch of Wolf, um, who got into reading sci-fi reportedly after hurting his leg while riding a bike as a kid. He was living in Ohio and was spending time at his grandmother's house uh she had a she was living in a house that used to be on the underground railroad and had like a secret room just filled with pulps and comics and stuff huh okay uh and he got into that he was born in new york city uh, would later go to college in texas a&m his family moved around a lot as he was a kid he did drop out of texas a&m and went and served in the korean war um, he later wrote and spoke pretty publicly about the PTSD he experienced, and I think some of his experiences over there made its way into his writing, of course. And then he was working for Procter & Gamble for like 16 years and reportedly contributed to the machine that makes Pringles. Huh. Or to the or to well, the process of making Pringles. Yeah, I was going to add, like, it feels like Pringles... Like there's so much that needs to happen to shred up and then reconstitute that potato product so that uh-huh. I don't know that one machine could do it all. <laughs> oh, uh, and so he worked on the cooking portion of the I Pringle, see, I see. apparently. Uh, but he I see. cooked in, a mean potato, did Gene yes. Wolfe? <laughs> uh, he does. He does give credit to quote a German gentleman in multiple interviews who developed the potato pressing machine, but. He was on the engineering part of the cooking machine. Pringles are a singular food, man. There ain't nothing like a Pringle. It's true. Thanks, Gene. <laughs> I mean, I got, it's, and you know, the surface of the, there's a lot of surface area on a Pringle. Yeah. And it leaves a lot of room to blast flavor onto. That's which true. Which I think is why, Pring, even before everything had a million flavors, I think Pringles was Pioneers. on the front lines yes. of that battle, mm-hmm, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, he ended up leaving. Man, I, his could, I could mess up a Pringle. I haven't eaten a Pringle in a long time. <laughs> uh, he ended up leaving his work at Procter and Gamble uh, to start writing full time. <laughs> there were no more worlds to conquer. <laughs> <laughs> uh, to start writing full time, I think in the seventies or early eighties. By that point, he was married. He had four kids, or would go on to have four kids um, with his childhood friend Rosemary. Um, he did convert to Catholicism. For their marriage, which apparently infuses some of his writing uh, in in different series as well. He had started writing in like the 60s uh, and got a little wrapped up in what is called the new wave of science fiction. I don't really understand what was new about it. It seemed like it was like a, (laughs) a transition between 
kind of are we doing pulpy fun sci-fi adventure stuff or are we gonna roll in some of the modern postmodern literary vibes into this world of fiction and we're also all in the atomic age now so what do we do with our speculative fiction sure um one of his first stories to get published was called the dead man it got published in a porn magazine named sir exclamation point (laughs) (laughs) just you know take work as you can get it man Um, porn has given us so much yeah society it's true just gives and gives gives and gives um his first book was operation aries and then he got attention for a novel called the fifth head of cerberus in 72 i think that's when he starts writing almost full time he would he would about the, go ahead about the fourth head you skipped one he skipped one that's mysterious now i need to know what happens hmm. um all this time he was also editing a, a plant engineering magazine um, but he would go on and be perhaps best known for a series of books called the book of the new sun tetralogy uh about a, i think you mean quadrilogy <laughs> oh my god <laughs> uh and he's written us a, a few other quartets of books in that universe all referred to as the solar cycle the main conceit that i can tell is that it is quote translated from a fictional document from the future like a a character in the universe who might be an unreliable narrator uh told his story and then gene wolf translated it from that in a kind of metafix fictional sort of thing like you do um, and then that seems to be a focus. I'm sure we'll talk about it today is unre- unreliable narrators. Lots of folks on his writing mention that he got the world fantasy lifetime achievement award in 1996 sci-fi hall of fame, 2007, multiple nebulas and other nominations over 30 ish novels or so. Uh, and yeah, as we said, this is this story slash novella, uh, is in the collection strange travelers, but yes, yeah, he's very well regarded by other writers in the field. Harlan Ellison um, is a huge fan, has said he is no less than one of the finest, most original writers in the world today. His work is singular, hypnotizing, startlingly above comparison. Ursula K. Le Guin referred to him as sci-fi's Melville, which hmm. that's a thing to say about someone. Yeah, is that, I guess it it could be an insult or a compliment depending on yeah right which aspects of uh-huh. melville's work that's you're, true. you're writing that's about. true uh and there's an article from 2002 that neil gaiman wrote called uh how to read gene wolf it's got like nine tips for reading his work such as trust the text implicitly the answers are in there and number two do not trust the text further than you could throw it if that far uh he write, there's one about there are wolves in there prowling behind the words. Sometimes they come out in the pages. Sometimes they wait until you close the book. The musky wolf smell sometimes be masked by the pramatic scent of rosemary. And I just was like, Neil Gaiman, what are we, what, what is are happening? Doing, <laughs> Take a breather, <laughs> Neil. Uh, but yeah, people who, who like to write sci-fi love to read Gene Wolfe. So I think that might be a good place to transition into the story itself andrew if you want to do any setting up and then we can peel this onion back layer by layer i don't need to really do any setting up i think we can just jump right in cool to the ziggurat great hit me by gene wolf uh so it's a dark and stormy night that's how we start okay it's a snowstorm though sure i don't know what kind of storm you assume it's never snow yeah okay uh it's a dark and snowstormy night (laughs) Well, I, I think it's the afternoon. Anyway, oh it's there's God. a snowstorm. <laughs> and this guy, Emery Bainbridge, is in a cabin in the woods. It's kind of, you know, removed from society. Um, and he is waiting for uh, his, currently his wife, Jan, and then his son from a previous marriage, and then her to twin daughters from a previous marriage to get to the cabin. Um, We don't find out why for a little bit, but then it becomes clear that they are finalizing a divorce. So uh, yeah, that's, that's the beginning. And the first (laughs) sort of the first indication that you get that maybe this guy is a little 
off his nut mm. <laughs> is, is you know he he writes a he keeps a diary he keeps like a record of of things and he is like talking to himself and the book says that's that was what being out here alone did. He told himself you were supposed to rest up. You were supposed to calm down. Instead, you started talking to yourself like some nut. He added aloud. Oh, so he's, uh, so so he's aware, his, might be aware of it. Maybe. Yeah, his wife, his wife, Jan, and then his son, Brooke, and then the twins, Eileen and Elena okay. are all on their way out. Um, thus would the family achieve its final and irrevocable separation for the first time. The Sibberlings, who had been and would again be on one side of the cabin, the Bainbridges on the other, boys here, girls over there, the laws would take years and demand tens of thousands of dollars to accomplish no more. <laughs> hmm. They're going to get a divorce. Okay. Uh, we see a little bit more about what uh, Emery spends his time doing. There's like a food bowl on the back porch that he puts food into and he's trying to like slowly tame this coyote so that can he have he can have like a cool coyote pet okay and while he's like doing all this and puttering around he sees out the window what looks like he can tell somebody's watching him you just can and Sometimes. he sees the, of a reflection off of something he writes in his diary somebody is on the hill across the creek with some kind of signaling device yeah it's definitely a light and stormy afternoon it's, <laughs> it's two it's 212 when he writes this down so that's good good job famous famous first line <laughs> it was a light and snowy middle of the day <laughs> um he decides he is gonna go up on the hill and investigate what this signaling thing is. Um, he's, he goes up, he doesn't really find anything. He's like footprints that make him believe that it's like some kind of small child or other kind of figure. Um, and then when he's going back to his cabin, he sees his door has been opened and there's like a tall figure and a smaller figure on his porch and they have gotten his like hunting rifle out of the cabin and they like take a shot at him. And he just, he is like, okay, I'm just gonna, there's not a lot of value in my cabin. I'm gonna lay here in the snow and just like wait for them to leave. And if they steal my Jeep, like fine. Yeah. Whatever. I'm just gonna, I'm gonna lay here and wait for it to, wait for things to, to die down. At this point, at this point, what is your impression of him as a, as a character, as a person? Are you like, rooting for him you just intrigued to see where it's going how do you feel about emery as a reader i mean you you this is only a few pages in and so th- this is something that people talk about when they're when they're reading gene wolf actually is like i think we are primed to maybe sympathize even is too strong a word but i think we're we're primed to take things that a narrator tells us at face value initially and then they have to prove themselves untrustworthy <laughs> through okay. their like actions and the events of the book. Like you start from a position of wanting to trust the person and then you lose that trust. I don't know that anybody ever sits down to read a, to read a piece of fiction and is like, all right, buddy, I'm going to assume that you're just lying to me about everything <laughs> until you win me over. I do feel like that maybe is what started to uh, happen with, M. Night Shyamalan movies, though, is like people started going in being like, well, what is this guy up to this time? Yeah. And may- I think maybe if you've re- read a lot of Gene Wolfe, you you start to get that, too. Like you you start to understand where specific authors are coming from and you learn to distrust them over <laughs> the course of many stories <laughs> and many years. And it seems very purposeful that he wants you to kind of distrust this stuff. Like it's not like a fault. He's doing it on yeah. purpose. Yeah. Yeah. But um, sorry. So, so he's waiting. He's, like, he's waiting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. While he's waiting, uh, Jan and in in a Lincoln or some other bit, yeah, big black Lincoln <laughs> drives up to the cabin, and Jan and the kids all get out, and he is like, "Uh oh, <laughs> I hope all those, I hope those people are gone." Oh no. So he goes in and he like briefly, I don't know, informs them what's going on, but it's, nobody seems all that worried about it um and and here in this conversation between emery and jan we get some more like background on him we learn that 
he had a company that was like reasonably successful, but then something happened to it. Um, we learn that their relationship has been falling apart for a while. We get a sense that Brooke is like maybe a te- some kind of teen. Like I, I would say in the 15 to 17 range. Okay. An, a slightly older the, teen perhaps. Yeah. Whereas the girls are like 10 or 11. Okay. Um, we learn that his, uh, Emery's lawyer has been handling most of the divorce conversations um, and he has not really been involved. And so when Jan shows up and says, these are the terms, this is what your lawyer agreed to. And you did say that he represented you. And then Emery is like, I don't like it. Ooh, I don't like this. There may have perhaps been a reason why he designated a lawyer in the first place. I don't, I don't like this, he says. And then she says, well, and, and so this is a this is the first big moment where you're like, wait, is this guy not telling me something? Um, is she says, well, if you will not. If you will not take these terms, then I'm going to tell everybody about how you molested the girls. Oh, gosh. Okay. And we had not heard anything about this from Emery before this. Of course not. Yeah. He had not told us, the reader, about any of this. Huh, Emery. And it is is left sort of ambiguous as to whether this is a thing that she has coached the girls to say to use as leverage over him, or this is a thing that he has actually done. Okay. Um... It is sort of lightly implied through his conversation. Like he has a little side conversation with one of the girls and it seems, it seems like he thinks that it didn't happen. Yeah. He, he definitely. Okay. Okay. Is trying to convince us the reader that it's a lie because he's telling her, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't matter what you said to the lawyer and I'm not upset with you, but like if you were to get on the stand that that's when you absolutely have to tell exactly the truth. He's like which, holding out hope that his kid will will not do this. Like wh- yeah, when push yeah, comes yeah. to shove. Okay. Yeah. Um. And so she's like, you know, she's saying, you know, if, if if this comes out about you, you'll be ruined, and you'll never be able to start another company, and everything will be bad, and it'll be terrible. Um. And he is obstinate, and so she and the girls go to leave. Um, and he's, they leave, Brooke is staying with Emery in the cabin, I guess. And as they, you know, they're standing on the porch, they're going out to the car. Um, Emery hears a, like Jan screaming and they run out and like these figures, these people, they're described only as like dark skinned, uh, have attacked, I guess, Jan and one of the twins and then the other twin, has run off in the confusion. And so uh, Emery takes the car and decides to drive down the road and like try and find the other one of the twins. And this I'm trying to make sure that I'm telling everything in like in like linear order. So he's driven out. He finds the other girl but she is like with those two people who you know who uh attack them in the first place okay. at gunpoint they take the car from him like they, they're trying to i think he thinks they're trying to like strip the car for parts are they talking Tra- at all or are they just not really okay no okay. like they he gets the impression that they don't understand in english huh okay um, at least that's what that's what he tells us. Mm. And so we get like he gets shot like non-lethally, like in the, he just gets grazed uh, by a bullet. And so he and and the other he and the rescued twin are stumbling back in the snow toward the cabin uh, to get back uh, to Jan. And it become like from what the girl is telling Emery, she seems to think that she has been like, like he notices that her pants are all icy. And so he's like, were you in the lake? Cause there's a lake. Yeah. <laughs> oh, oh, thanks. <laughs> um, 
and she's she's like talking to him and it seems like she she's been inside somewhere she's been in some water she's also been gone for like much longer than she actually has been gone like she seems to think she's been gone for like hours okay she is not she's not actually uh been been missing for that long um, so they, you know, some, I don't know, something weird is going on. He sees some like blue lights out over the lake that he's like, what's, what's that? Is that a boat? That doesn't make sense. It's pretty stormy. Why would somebody be out there with a boat? They get back to the house. Uh, Jan and the girls like, and, uh, Brooke helps to patch Emery up and then Jan and the girls are like, okay, we're, you gotta drive. We're, we gotta go. <laughs> yeah. We gotta leave. Um, so uh, Emery and Brooke drive them in the Jeep to like a hotel. Uh, Brooke and Emery are driving home. They have what seems like a fairly problematic conversation about the nature of love. Oh, uh, Women don't love in the same way that men do, Brooke. I said the psychology was different, and that's one of the main differences. Men are dogs. Women are cats. They love conditionally. Uh, when you love a woman, you'll love her in the same way, but women love as long as, as long as you have a good job, as long as you don't bring home your friends and so on. You shouldn't blame them for that because it's as much a part of their natures as the way you love is of yours. For women, love is a spell that can be broken by picking a flower or throwing a ring into the sea. Love is magic, which is why they frequently use the language of fairy tales when they talk about it. Yo, Emery, my <laughs> dude. <laughs> Stop. Get off. Stop listening to Joe Rogan, Emery. Stop Yeah, it. Emery loves, he loves reading Jordan Peterson books. Oh. When, did, um, when did Emery become the debate me guy? This sucks. I have a suspicion that he sucked the whole time and, and the story just didn't tell you up front how much he sucks. It's, I mean, the fact that whether he molested these girls is up for debate at yeah, all kind okay. of puts you in a position to be like does this guy suck <laughs> he seems like he might suck let me put a pin in this page and wonder does this guy suck does this guy suck um so he and brooke get back to the cabin uh they go to sleep emory wakes up in the morning to the smell of coffee and bacon uh but where's brooke brooke's not here where'd he go um and he goes out into the snow and he finds in the snow uh, Brooke laying dead, his head split open with the act, uh, an axe that the people also stole from his house. Oh, cool. So he, and this, so this is the other part where I'm like, what is, what is seriously, what is up with this guy? Because in a very detached, like a matter of fact sort of way, he, puts he like moves Brooks body puts it out back like covers it with something and he was like well I guess I'd better call the funeral home to make arrangements oh my god and so he does he does that and then they have him call the sheriff who has who you know it has the coroner call him and 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 like he's it's very floaty and like not I don't know. He's acting almost like he expected it to happen. And I don't, not even that he expected it to happen. Just like it it hasn't surprised him. It hasn't flapped him in any specific way. Yeah. That's, it sounds, it's, and it sounds like that is evoking a very, like, not only does, does this guy suck, but what's up with this guy? What's up with this guy? Like, is he, is he in shock and he's just kind of moving through the motions of things or is he, is it something else? Okay. 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 Um, so he is, Emery has decided I need to go to whatever that was in the middle of the lake and I need to seek, I need to seek vengeance and I also need to preemptively protect myself from these marauding whoever they are. Yeah, totally, totally. And so he goes out into the lake and he finds that this is the ziggurat. Is It's supposedly the spaceship kind of thing Yes, that he goes into. And we don't know why he thinks it's a spaceship or why he knows it's a spaceship. He just is convinced it's a spaceship and then is telling us about all of his theories about the spaceship that he's going into. Okay. <laughs> uh, from his thick stand of pine on the lakeshore, he had as good a view of the canted structure that uh, Eileen had called a ziggurat as the gray daylight and blowing snow permitted, an assemblage of cubicle modules tapering to a peak in a series of snow-covered terraces. 
Uh, certainly not an aircraft, a spacecraft perhaps, more likely a space station, toward the bottom or rather toward the ice surrounding it, for there had to be an additional 40 feet or more of it submerged in the lake. The modules were noticeably crushed and deformed. And so you see how his brain is like, yeah, it's a spaceship. Maybe a space station. And then he just proceeds as if it's a space station. Yeah, totally. <laughs> um, so he goes in. Some One of the two shorter beings like attacks him and he kills it. Like he squishes, he squishes his thumbs into its eyes and then it like falls down a ladder shaft and like drowns. I didn't know that's that, fine. I didn't know that Emery was also Jack Bauer, but okay. <laughs> like this is taking some turns. Willing um, to kill people with his hands. Yeah, he is. So he has killed this one thing. Then he goes back to the cabin. Um, It's, it's dark. He's like, did I leave the, did I leave the light on? I don't remember. Um, and as he is kind of making some food for himself to eat, he is like he, so he goes out to get wood to light a fire. He notices footprints. He notices that embedded in these footprints is like some soot. And he's like, well, they came, they must've come down the chimney. And so he lights a fire in the chimney and one of the other beings is like hiding up there and falls out. And then the other, the taller of them comes out from under the bed that he'd prepared for Jan when he was like waiting for her to come and like hoping he could convince her to stay. Oh man. Uh, so there is a, like a fight for a gun. He earlier, he like broke into another cabin nearby and stole another gun. For, um, for he, protection or for funsies? For protection, okay. yeah. Because they had taken his rifle and he didn't want to be like at a disadvantage. Sure. So they're fighting over this gun. It goes off. It kills the taller of the, the alien-y things. And it is embedded in uh, in the other one like the the bullet goes through the the tall one and ends up in like the short one's leg and and then he starts like talking to it and like convinced that if he like helps it and is nice to it like they can be friends Mm. and he like he takes the bullet out very carefully he calls you know he calls the doctor or the doctor calls him. I don't remember like this. It's the doctor. He was supposed to talk to about his son being axed in the head. (laughs) Getting a lot of calls from this guy lately. Yeah. A lot of, a lot of weird phone calls. Um, and he, Emery like names the, he gives the alien kind of a weird name and he's talking to it. And, and then the, the end of the, like he decides, okay, I'm I'm gonna burn up this spaceship because it's made of magnesium. I hypothesize. Yeah. Um, and you're just gonna have to stay here, and we're I'm gonna take care of you, and then we're gonna get married, and we're gonna live. Ha- we're gonna build a new cabin. He told the sleeping Tamar. Tamar is the name he's given this alien person. A house, really, and a big one, right on the shore. There, we'll live in that house, you and me, for a long, long time, and we'll have children. Very gently, her fingers tighten around his. So what? <laughs> what the heck happened? Now, there's a lot happening in those last few sentences. Uh, okay. I yeah. I and I. This unfolds a little bit more gradually. Like if you're actually reading, it, of but course. I felt like I needed to actually like get through it and yeah. just tell you about it. That's fair. It also um, sounds like you've been very careful not to add. Uh, anything that the story isn't telling you at the moment to your telling to me. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm trying, I'm trying to be light about my editorializing. Cause now we get to talk about like the M night Shyamalan <laughs> twist. That- <laughs> yes. Um, I'll just say that there is a somewhat out of date, uh, Gene Wolf wiki at wolfwiki.com. I believe its last update was in 2017. Yeah, like all fan wikis, yes. I assume it stops right in the middle of his body of well, work it, and is frustratingly it, incomplete. Uh, the I found it because there's a whole article called The Ziggurat Ending Interpretations, and it cites multiple reviews and newsletters about different interpretations of the ending. 
because apparently it's up for debate. So <laughs> what? Yeah. So like one one interpretation that I know of is just that it happened the way that he said it happened. Yeah. Some aliens showed up and killed his family, and then he is gonna marry one of them. Yeah. Okay. Makes sense to me. <laughs> Makes total sense. There's nothing else going on. But I, mean, I don't know. You could. He's suffered some trauma in the form of his wife leaving him and his son being killed. Okay. And he maybe misguidedly, maybe not, just decides I have nothing left, but now I can rebuild something with like some of this alien technology that I've taken out of the spaceship, and with this strange person who I've helped and named who is just going to be my new wife now. Okay. <laughs> I guess. Like, it's it doesn't make a lot of sense, but it is sci-fi. There's a spaceship. <laughs> a lot of things could be happening. <laughs> yes, that could all track. Sure. What other interpretations do you think are possible? I don't know if there are other interpretations on that that fan wiki page that that you mentioned but the main one that i found suggests that okay a tall alien and two short aliens that's actually jan and the twins and he kills one of the twins he kills jan he is the one who actually killed his own son and then the other twin he is going to make her his his child bride and they're going to live happily ever after. Yeah. And so points in favor of the story happening just at face value is you, he would have to be completely lying to you the entire time. Like like there's that you know, if he if the story didn't happen the way it happened, like why is Jan out screaming on the porch? How did like they're little? Brooke, yeah, Brooke yeah. and Emery both drove Jan and the girls to a like a hotel in town. Allegedly, Brooke doesn't seem to think that anything is amiss. Really, when this happens, like they have that sort of lightly misogynistic conversation on the drive back to the cabin, but mm-hmm. Emery's not asking. Like, how, how did you kill? <laughs> He's not acting like anything else happened, like anything weird or un- untoward. Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, they're, they're just little bits and pieces that are like, if that's how it happened, then like, if, if, if that's not how it happened, then he is just like straight up lying to us about things that he is like hearing and seeing and listen in a gene wolf story apparently that's not totally out of the question yeah well you said it it might not be that he's like outright lying as much as his version of the truth he's just like yeah steadily in inventing things to like rationalize other stuff that's that's happening i don't know yeah what do do you personally prefer an interpretation? Like, would one or the other make the story more interesting to you? It sounds like the ve- it's a it's a weird story either way. <laughs> I honestly would have to. I didn't because I didn't come to that interpretation on my own at all. I don't oh. think it ever would have occurred to me to think, oh, it was it was his wife and stepdaughter who he killed instead of alien it was it's a weird story i don't the ending kind of makes me gives me a bunch of question marks over my head like i'm a comic book character who's confused about something but i would not have jumped right to oh it was his wife and daughter were the aliens and he killed them all until i read this this apparently common interpretation which said you know mr police i left you all the clues <laughs> if you're reading close it's all in there so maybe i would have to read it again knowing what i know or like suspecting what i <laughs> yeah yeah what i know and maybe it would become clearer like exactly what the the vague things and the the like unverifiable things were covering up well, it seems like you could go into it. Some poetry works this way, and lots of 
text that is deliberate that is like meant to be interpreted has this to it where like if you go in with a reading of it you're going to get certain things out like you're going to if you go in with the what is referred to in the wolf wiki as the maximum delusion theory <laughs> um, <laughs> if you go in with the yeah he murdered them and this is all made up you're going to you might if if the text you're going to be looking for that and everything that you find that would back that up is like You'll, okay, yeah. cool. That's exactly what happened. Um, you might you might go in with the barbaric happy ending, which he he does. He's just it like really leans into him as this like awful misogynist, and the women are you know false accusers, and he is looking for a way to dominate the world around him after he has been spurned. And then there's what seems to be the the interpretation. That I think you're interested in, which is the flawed hero unhappy ending, uh, which does seem to take some of the sci-fi stuff as like real, quote value. unquote. Yeah. yeah, even if it's a little wobbly. Well, I think I think the unhappy ending thing is a reference to the fact that his the the story he has told the cops is absolutely not going to hold up under any scrutiny at all, and they are going to think that he murdered his own son. Yeah. And they're not going to just leave him to happily marry, start a new company and marry his child bride and live happily ever after. Yeah, yeah. So that's sort of assumed in the in that unhappy ending reading. Okay, okay. Um, yeah, this all this points to one of the the tips that Neil Gaiman wrote, which is reread. It's better the second time. It will be even better the third time. The books will reshape themselves while you're away from them. Uh, there's one novel called Peace which Gaiman says started as a gentle gentle Midwestern memoir the first time I read it. It only became a horror novel on the second or third reading. <laughs> okay. So like, okay. And we can, we can actually like cut this out and not do it if, if, so we're recording a little bit earlier than we do on, on Sunday. So you can go watch the big game. Yeah. We can just like finish our conversation and go about our business and be done. Or, we can stop now. I can go actually reread it again between now and like tonight. And then we come back and like do another 10 minutes about whether I, whether I think one of the things is more true or not. This is unprecedented and I love it. Okay. So why don't, okay. Okay. What is happening? I, I didn't think about it until just now, but it's like short enough that I could do it. Yes. And Neil Neil Gaiman's kind of telling me that I have to and he's the boss. So we're going to listen to Neil. Okay. The the audience will not really know that anything has happened. Well, no, because we're talking about it right now. They will know yeah. our audience. Yeah. yeah. Well, why don't you go no, it's read? just like the, the story is short enough to read again. We are like 15 minutes short of a normal overdue episode. <laughs> Yeah, let's and do I, it. I think coming back after the big game and talking about it for 10 minutes is going to be fine. Unprecedented. So. Yeah, okay. Let's do let's okay, we're going to hang up and we will be back with another interpretation, I guess, of the ziggurat. <laughs> Really innovating here, I think. The only time I've ever come back to record another part of a podcast later is when an audio accident has happened and yes. I've lost some stuff. We don't normally take a break to go so that I can go watch a football game and then we'll have more podcasts. And I it's can not... read the book again, yeah. Yeah, that doesn't often happen. So I read I read the story again. Yeah. And... We don't need to recap the d- different possible interpretations of the ending because you, the listener, just heard it. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna go out on a limb and say the textual evidence for he killed his wife and family. You've got to be looking really, really hard. I think. Okay. Like, I'm not saying that is an invalid read, but I am saying if you are going to understand that to be the case then the entire second half of the story pretty much is a incredibly vivid, detailed hallucination that doesn't actually happen. Yeah. And I don't think, I don't think that's what Wolf's trying to do. Okay. It's not I, a full yeah. life of pie is what you're saying. Yeah. Like, 
it's tough to take it face value because here's what I noted because I was I was really really looking for it like we just talked about that thing where you read an interpretation beforehand and then you go in and it's easy to see yeah, the breadcrumbs. Yeah. I was highlighting literally every weird discrepancy or whatever that uh, Emery said or or noticed or every like every just like weird little pause or weird little side observation. What I will say definitely definitely got more misogyny this week. Okay. After looking for it harder. Okay. Just a lot of one off remarks about about women, you know, women be like this, men be like this. I feel like there's <laughs> I I feel like if that stuff is coming through and it's coming through in a way that's supposed to push you away from him, right? Like it's telling you, it's teaching you about him. I feel like the, it's not a far leap to want the like maximum delusion Scenario, thing to be true yeah. just because yeah. it, it then is like the most extreme version of like, well, that character does suck to the mm-hmm. umph degree, you know? Yeah. And I'm never sure like when a, you know, when a guy writing this in 1995, I'm not sure what's intentional and just what's. Yeah, we're just going I, on. He would have been yeah. the older, an older gentleman. Wolf would have been. I'm not trying to cast aspersions. I just sometimes I don't know. I don't want to bring my own reaction to the masculinity in because I don't know how like 26 year old yeah, masculinity but... would play differently at at the time and like what's intentional on Wolf's part and what I'm bringing to it myself. I don't know. Um, we're reading it now. That's fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. So def- definitely notice more misogyny. Um. Definitely he's not reliable in some specific way. Like he is he is always I don't know, like we talked about it a little bit already, but he's always looking at something and making a snap judgment on what the truth must be and then proceeding as though that's the truth without really thinking about it anymore. Like that's, the one simple yeah. note section I noticed was he and Brooke, his son, are driving back after leaving um, his soon-to-be ex-wife and the twins at the Ramada Inn. It's very specific about when they drop them off, <laughs> and he is also with his son the whole time. Like there is a, there is ostensibly an observer to all this, which is one of the big like, are we sure he killed his wife and twins and son things? Um, anyway, they stop. Like the 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 aliens, the supposed aliens had taken. Jan's car and like stripped it but Brooke left some stuff in the trunk and so they'd find it like abandoned in the snow and he's like can I check the trunk and see if my stuff's still in there and there's some stuff in there and he grabs some bags and uh, Emery's like do you want me to help and Brooke is a little furtive and he's like no and then Emery assumes oh he must have like a stereo or a TV in there I hate TV I'm not gonna say anything about it though (laughs) what you know (laughs) you know what i mean like that's such a weird thing to go right immediately to okay and then just to be so certain of it but that's it that's a small example that that shows a thing that his character does all the time and and Mm. it extrapolates to bigger stuff like here's a spaceship in the middle of the lake it must have gotten there because the lake, the frozen over lake looked like a landing pad from whatever vantage point. Like you can, I think one read of that is that he's inventing, he's not observing things, he's inventing them. And so that's why it's happening with such like surety. And he's just yes. like kind of constructing guesses as he goes. Can I ask, is there anything in this read that made you doubt that the ziggurat was real? You think that did happen? That that is tough because by the time you get there, Emery is your only point of view. Mm, yeah, and like you don't have another, I don't know, ostensibly sane or ostensibly, I don't even know if you would say Brooke is reliable. It just gets harder to construct this whole thing where yes, his son definitely was physically at the cabin and died. But like sometimes he would have to be a hallucination or like in cahoots or, you know, it's it's yep. just starts to strain credulity. <laughs> OK, a little bit. So I, I don't know if the ziggurat is real or not. He does. He definitely goes in there and picks up a bunch of weird gadgets that he comes out with and like some metal scrapings. Huh. 
that he scraped from inside it. And he calls somebody named David on the phone. And he's like, hey, David, remember when I had a company and you used to work there? And listen, I found all this. You can't ask me where I got it, but I found all this high tech stuff and I'm going to start another company. And like the weird thing about this conversation, it's happening after he has killed the tall, the big alien. And then the third one is like wounded in his cabin. That's going to be his alien bride. Uh. And while he's having this conversation with David, like David never says anything. It's all you get like Emery's extremely detailed side of the conversation. And um, let me pull up exactly what uh, David is saying here. Um, David spoke. (laughs) Oh, that's That's all. David spoke at length. A last querulous question. Querulous? Querulous? Who knows? Uh, Yeah. So we don't know what David's saying. Yeah, and it maybe it's not important because he's inventing it. Because he killed his whole family. But, I don't know. <laughs> okay. I feel like if, if you want to... Th- there are definitely some breadcrumbs there. Like, there's a tall alien and then two smaller aliens. The two smaller aliens are described as being, like, of a size with the twins all the time. Um, the twins' dad, I think, uh, was black, and so they are a little darker skinned. And he does, you know, make a note that the aliens are all darker skinned. Now, Jan is not. Uh-huh. She is specifically described as, like, blonde. Um and the tall alien is described as as brown, like the like the other ones. So I I don't know. Like maybe there's some weird dissociation. Like there there's a moment after he kills the tall alien where he really really pointedly does not look at its face in a way where huh. if you were trying to construct a reality where he killed his whole family, like maybe he's not looking at his face because he doesn't want to break the thing. Like when yep. he kills the alien inside the ziggurat and looking at its face and being sort of horrified in a, in a vague and non-specific way that it doesn't go very far into is also like pointedly a thing. So I'm not, I'm not saying there's no evidence. I'm saying I don't find that to be the most obvious or the most like compelling. Well, and it also feels thing. tricky. I guess I'd like to hear the, the case made by somebody else, but it yeah, does. I, it I does, wasn't getting it. It does feel like, um, it's Trixie on per- Trixie is a word that came up in multiple okay, Goodreads reviews okay. of this collection. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it feels like Wolf was not going to write a story that had the Shyamalan twist, that had the like, this is definitely what was going on. He wants what we're doing right now, I think, to be the point of the story a little bit. Yeah, because whenever you're dealing with an unreliable narrator, you some often the author will leave some kind of breadcrumb from an external perspective to anchor you a little bit or to suggest to you specific ways in which the narrator is being unreliable where, and and I don't know, like in that reading, like if, if you're reading it, like you would normally read a Shyamalan thing, there would be something at the end, like a tossed off, reference to Jan or to some like specific yep thing where where the book is trying to tell you oh what you just thought was true isn't true correct if you're paying attention here's the detail to let you know yeah that that doesn't happen here um i found a quote from uh wolf in an interview on nova express with lawrence person or pearson um it always seems to me that if you have a narrator if the narration is not by an all-knowing all-seeing author if you're going to say that this person in the story is going to tell the story then the narrator is damn well going to be unreliable real people really are unreliable narrators all the time even if they try to be reliable ones ask any courtroom lawyer about examining five or six different witnesses to the same event the five or six witnesses are all trying to tell the truth but they've all seen different things or in some cases think they've seen things that are not in fact there so that's wolf just on the nature of an unreliable narrator and it's it comes up again and again in people talking about his work overall. Yeah, and if the goal by it. if the goal of of his writing or or of this story in particular is 
leave enough weird breadcrumbs that people can kind of just do whatever they want with it. And and maybe there's no one real canonical interpretation. Then like yeah. mission accomplished. Like there there's enough <laughs> put up the weird, banner. You did there's it. enough weird stuff in here that I definitely know that it can't possibly be 100% literally true. Yeah. But also, I don't know. <laughs> I don't, the, none of the evidence points toward any specific assumption, I guess. There's or, one, or like one of, it, it doesn't all point toward the same assumption. One of the readings on that Wolf Wiki I found mentions time traveling and cloning and one of the names being biblical and thus being like a reference to incest. Like there's a lot of other clues to play with. Yeah, and that's that's where I, as a reader, and we encountered this when we read uh, Dante. Yeah. But uh, if if you got to be super up on like your classic lit to understand some of the references and some of what he's doing, like I respect people who are smart enough to do that, but it's not me. <laughs> sure. Yeah. I, I mean, more about there's also just the like, maybe there's cl- they're clones of his family. Maybe they're from the future versions of his family. You mentioned something about like one of the girls being gone for a weird amount of time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, who knows, man? That seems to be the point. Gene Wolf, who knows, man? Who knows, man? That's my verdict. I read well, your story how, twice. I was did. The, I, was it a fun experience to yeah, do that? Yeah, it was like it a was little fun mystery to, to solve. It was fun to be on like a mission while I'm reading it, you know? <laughs> Instead yeah. of just like reading it and taking it in. And then also, I think we've also talked about this. I think after you finish a book, if you loop back around to like the first 10 or so percent of it where it's doing that thing where it's just throwing stuff at you and you're still trying to figure out the world from context clues. Like that's valuable to to do, just to loop mm. around and and revisit early stuff with the perspective gained from reading the later stuff and knowing what's important and what isn't. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. There's certainly things that happen in your understanding of the like the book's world that can happen when you're not reading the book. Yeah, and sometimes that's just in the last chapter you have all that information in the first chapter you don't you're like oh i don't like it here yet yeah right <laughs> yeah it'd be easier and it's also it's easy to do because this story is like 90 pages long yeah sure well uh, it sounds yeah. like this was like a little escape room that you had to have some fun with so yeah did you escape i we're at the end of the episode ain't we you made it in under an hour maybe we'll see that's we'll how much escape rooms work <laughs> Um, if you, the listener, have a different interpretation of this story that you want to tell us about, you can write in at overduepod at gmail.com. Hit us up on Facebook and or Twitter to thank Andrew for telling us about this story, even though he couldn't tell us what definitely happened. But that's not his fault. That's Gene Wolfe's fault. Wow. Wow. <laughs> Uh, thanks to James, Rebecca, Chris, Clara, Sarah, Sam, and many more for reaching out in the past week. Thanks to Nick Lorandis, who composed our theme song. Andrew, if folks want to know more about the show, where should they go? They should go to OverduePodcast.com, which is our internet website. Up there, we have links to the books that we have read and the ones that we are going to read. Um, our February schedule has been up for a little bit. Um, next week, Craig is going to be telling us about The Stone Sky, Broken Earth Number 3 by N.K. Jemison. Yeah. And then on February 22nd, our friend Camille Washington is going to come on. We're going to talk about A Promised Land by Barack Hussein Obama. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's going to be good. It's going to be fun. And then we're going to do a Q&A episode as our bonus episode this yes. month. So if send you're... us your cues to uh, any, of the, any of the things that Craig mentioned. Did you mention our inbox? Yeah, I always okay, do. Cool. It's the first thing I always say. I know it's uh, it's ATV. We forget to do it all the time. <laughs> sure. Also up on that website, uh, links to all the places you can get the podcast: Apple Podcasts, Google, our RSS feed. We're on Stitcher. We're on Spotify. We're everywhere. Yeah, you can't escape. You you cannot escape our game. Uh, and then Patreon.com/slash Overdue Podcast is our Patreon project. Helps pay for books, hosting, daycare for my human child. Yep. All kinds of stuff. All kinds of things. Oh, for your human child. Yes. yes. <laughs> Not the several digital children that are amassing in your office. Yeah. And I mean, I'm an unreliable narrator, so truly who knows how many <laughs> children I have or where they are, or who they are, or what they are. 
Andrew, thanks for uh, doing this unorthodox episode. This was fun. You're welcome. This is a story so nice. I read it twice. <laughs> Get us out of here. All right, everybody. Thanks for listening. And until we talk to you next week, try to be happy. That was a HeadGum Podcast.